You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, I'm Neil. And I'm Ken. And we are from the Triviality Podcast, a pub trivia-style game show where a lack of seriousness meets a little bit of knowledge. Join us each week for an hour-long game of general knowledge trivia featuring special guests from around the world. Plus... Tons of extra themed episodes. If you want to improve your trivia game, or you just want to scream at us in your car when we get easy questions wrong, then we're the show for you. Find Triviality on all your favorite podcast apps. But you know that, because you're already listening to a podcast. So one thing I don't think I've ever mentioned on this podcast is that I've been a member of our local PBS station, that's WMHT. I've been a member of their Educational Services Committee for over 30 years. And as much as I hate to admit it, yes, it does make me, by far, the senior member of the group. You see, it was during my second year of teaching, that's the 1991-92 school year, that I applied for an educational grant that WMHT was awarding to one teacher within its viewing area. And having been an earth science teacher, I submitted a proposal to fund several activities that I had in mind to study dinosaurs in the high school classroom. I mean, who doesn't love dinosaurs, right? Well, this mostly focused on using fossil replicas to examine such things as their size, their speed, and their rate of growth. And to my surprise, I won the grant for $1,000. And I have to tell you, back then, that was far more money than the school typically gave me to run my classroom. And then the following year, I won a second grant for $500 to study model roller coasters in my physics classes. And that's when I was asked to join their educational committee. After having been awarded so much grant money, I mean, how could I refuse? I like to joke that I was guilted into doing so, but that really isn't true. I did choose, and uh, I've always enjoyed being on the committee. But I must admit that being on the committee has never required a significant amount of work on my part. Much of it involves reviewing lesson plans, activities, and, you know, and other documents that are being prepared to accompany a show that the station is producing. Much of this work is now done electronically, you know, by email, but we do get together every few months to meet. It was at one of these meetings several months ago, and it just happened to be our first in-person meeting since COVID hit. I briefly mentioned a little factoid that I knew, that the state of Mississippi had banned the broadcast of Sesame Street when it first went on the air. Why, you may ask? Very simple. The cast of Sesame Street was integrated. So when I got home that night, I decided to research a story a little bit further, you know, to find out more. I mean, was Sesame Street really banned or, you know, has the story become twisted over the 53 years that have passed since this happened? And while I don't want to give anything away, I'm probably going to disappoint some of you when I tell you that no giant yellow canaries, no talking frogs, no cookie-eating monsters, none of them were harmed in any way. So coming up next, I present to you the real story of Sesame Street being banned in Mississippi. I am Steve Silverman, and this is the Useless Information Podcast. Useless Information. 
One thing that I am certain that I've mentioned before in this podcast is that I was born in Brooklyn, New York. Then at the age of seven, my dad made the decision to leave the city behind. He sold our house, he sold his electrical business, and we relocated to my parents' summer home in the Catskill Mountains. This move not only marked our departure from urban life, but it also signaled the end of our access to much of anything in the way of television. I'd say at best on a clear day, we could receive three channels out of New York City. They were channels two, four, and five, and we couldn't get anything else. I should mention we had a giant antenna on the roof of the house, but it still didn't help. One station that we couldn't get was channel 13, that's WNET, and that just happened to be the PBS or Public Broadcasting Service station that broadcasts out of the city. What that meant is that I saw very little in the way of educational television while I was growing up, and that did include Sesame Street. I do recall watching Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood while we were still living in New York City, but I have to tell you it was a little bit too old for Sesame Street's target audience when it premiered on November 10th of 1969. I do remember watching a few episodes, but at that point I have to tell you I was more interested in watching other things. You know, it could be the Brady Bunch, the Partridge Family, and even reruns of you know shows like I Love Lucy. The reality was that little of what I was watching did much in the way of educating. My favorite cartoons, they included Speed Racer, The Jetsons, The Flintstones, and Megilla Gorilla. And clearly, these shows are made to entertain children. Of course, their real underlying purpose, what was it? To make money by selling ads for toys and sugary cereals. And I have to tell you, I was their prime audience. Those commercials really did work on me. Not only did I want the latest and greatest Hot Wheels race car set, I consumed massive quantities of cereals like Sugar Smack, Sugar Crisp, Sugar Pops, and so on. Now get this, as unhealthy as they were, I never found them sweet enough and I added even more sugar to every bowl. That's probably why I'm not very tall. While watching these cartoons and eating those sugary cereals made for a really enjoyable childhood, looking back at it through my adult eyes, it's clear that children's television programming wasn't very good back then, at least from an educational perspective. I like to say that kids are like sponges at that age. You know, everything is new to them, and they just love learning. Yet, and there are some exceptions to this, but television was really doing very little to capitalize upon this. One person who did notice the bleak children's television landscape in the mid-1960s was Joan Gans Cooney. She worked as an Emmy Award-winning documentary producer for the nonprofit WNDT Channel 13 in the New York City area, and that was a nonprofit channel that would later morph into WNET Channel 13. A little side note is that the NDT and WNDT stood for New Dimensions in Television. The story goes that one night during the winter of 1966, Joan and her husband Timothy were having a dinner party in their apartment near Gramercy Park in Manhattan. In attendance were her boss at WNDT, that's Louis Friedman, and Lloyd and Mary Morissette. Now, Lloyd is very important to the story, and that's because Lloyd was a mid-level executive and later CEO of the Carnegie Corporation. And he posed the following question. Do you think television could be used to teach young children? To which Cooney replied, I don't know, but I'd like to talk about it. Well, the next thing you know, Cooney took a leave of absence from her job at WNDT. And with the generous support from the Carnegie Corporation, 
she embarked on a journey across the United States and Canada to engage with specialists in child development, education, and of course, television. She compiled her discoveries into a comprehensive document that was titled, The Potential Uses of Television in Preschool Education. In it, Cooney envisioned the development of a groundbreaking new television show, a children's show, and it would be one that not only entertained, but also educated and prepared young children for school. So in 1968, Carnegie joined up with the Ford Foundation, the Corporation for Public Broadcasting, and the United States government to form the Children's Television Workshop. Their combined initial investment was about $8 million, which is nearly $70 million today. And under Cooney and Morissette's leadership, they set out to create a show that would be equally accessible to children of all socioeconomic and ethnic backgrounds. The name of this new show remained undecided until the very last moment. The working title was, and you're going to love this, uh, it was the Preschool Educational Television Show. But of course, everyone involved knew they needed to find something better. In the end, they opted for the name Sesame Street. Why? <laughs> because it was the one they disliked least. Not because they loved it. They disliked it least. I should add that there was some concern at the time that little children, that they'd be unable to pronounce Sesame Street. The new show had a budget of $28,000 per episode. That's around $232,000 today. And the producers set out to make Cooney's vision a reality. Of course, this is all uncharted television territory, so five one-hour episodes were produced. And this is not only to test their appeal to young children, but also to see how much of what was taught was retained afterward. None of these test episodes would ever be broadcast, but they did exactly what they were intended to do. First, it was noticed that the children were very attentive during the scenes with Jim Henson's Muppets, but their minds, they just tended to wander during the street scenes. In addition, the producers had selected actor Garrett Saunders to play lead human character Gordon, but it was clear that he'd been miscast. He would be replaced by one of the show's producers, Matt Robinson, who, I have to say, was perfect for the role. Having the Muppet scenes separate from the street scenes had been done on purpose. That's because specialists in child psychology expressed concern that the children would be confused if both the humans and the Muppets appeared on the screen at the same time. But the producers had a gut feeling that the children wouldn't be confused, and they asked Jim Henson to create Muppets that could interact with the humans during those street scenes. And that's how Oscar the Grouch and Big Bird, you know, two of the series' most enduring characters, how they came to be. Now what I'm going to do is I'll place links to both one of the original test pilot episodes and the very first Sesame Street episode on my website, which is uselessinformation.org. And I encourage you to go there and compare the two. It's really shocking how different they are. The show that premiered on television is so much better than the original test pilot. So what I thought I'd also do is ask you a question about that first episode. At the very end, it's mentioned that Sesame Street was brought to you by two numbers and three letters, which of course were repeated throughout the program. Do you know what they were? Well, here's a hint. The three letters are all directions on a compass, and the two numbers are less than five. Anyway, hang around for a bit, and I'll let you know the answer at the end of the story. 
Now, as I mentioned earlier, Sesame Street premiered on November 10th of 1969, and it was both a runaway and critical success. Within months, its audience had grown to 6 million viewers on an estimated 190 different educational television channels all across the United States. But one place that Sesame Street definitely wasn't playing was in the state of Mississippi. And there really was a good reason for that. You see, Mississippi didn't have a licensed educational television station in 1969. You know, no TV station, no Sesame Street. It's as simple as that. And while a few fortunate residents managed to catch a signal from public television stations in neighboring states, the majority of Mississippians were unable to watch the show. Mississippi was undeniably lagging behind, but the state legislature had taken a crucial step by allocating $390,000, that's around $3.2 million a day, to establish an educational television channel. Thanks to this funding, WMAA Channel 29 commenced broadcasting on Sunday, February 1st of 1970. They were operating on just one channel located near Jackson, Mississippi, and the station had an estimated range of 65 miles or 105 kilometers. Just eight days after the station began broadcasting, it found itself in hot water. On February 9th of 1970, the station ran a 90-minute documentary titled Hospital, and it was filmed entirely at Metropolitan Hospital in New York City. It was a no-holds-bar film that showed what really went on inside the emergency room of a large hospital. The show was part of public television's NET Journal program, and that was a hard-hitting documentary series that explored the many social issues of the time, and that included poverty and racism. Critically acclaimed, NET Journal and the show's underwriter, that's the Ford Foundation, they were heavily criticized by conservatives for its extreme liberal slant. Almost immediately, two officials at the Mississippi Authority for Educational Television, which is abbreviated ETV, they offered up an apology. William R. Smith and Barb Roland jointly issued a statement that read, in part, quote, This is not the kind of ETV that we've been working towards for the past four years. We want to assure the people of Mississippi that programming of this type will not be broadcast again. We were as shocked as the home viewers. A little side note is that I was unable to locate a copy of Hospital Online, but my hunch is that what they consider to be shocking in 1970, it would probably be mild by today's standards. Around the same time that they had promised not to broadcast another program like this, that same commission was pleading with the state legislature to increase their funding. Such financial support would enable them to extend the station's broadcast hours, which were limited at that time from 5 to 11 p.m. on Sunday through Friday. They would also acquire additional programming rights, and they would be able to construct transmitters across the state, allowing them to reach a wider audience. To accomplish all this, ETV requested $7.2 million. That's about $56.4 million today. They requested $7.2 million from the state. The state's House Appropriations Committee discussed it, and they recommended that the station receive the same $390,000 in funding that it had received the previous year. In other words, no increase. 
Well, this caused an uproar on the House floor between those in favor of fully funding the station and, of course, those who were opposed to it. And here's just a sampling of comments from those elected officials. Senator Knapp Cassabry stated, quote, It's an investment in the future of our children. Yet Representative Malcolm Mabry was strongly opposed. He warned that, quote, We should approach this with great caution because ETV can be one of the most dangerous programs we ever face. He added, Could be a monster. When the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare comes into any area, then we can expect Washington to tell us what we can put on the air. State Senator Fred Wickerfeld, quote, It's a frill, a fad, a way of keeping up with the Joneses. Lastly, one legislator who opted to remain anonymous commented, quote, It's the biggest boondoggle the state has ever entered into. Well, the vote was taken on Thursday, March 5th of 1970, and to everyone's surprise, the bill to fund the entire $7.2 million, it passed by a vote of 76 to 35. Statewide educational television was now a go in Mississippi. Of course, their viewing audience was still limited to the Jackson area, but the plan was to have transmitted installed elsewhere. However, a conspicuous void existed in their daily broadcast lineup. Sesame Street, perhaps the most critically acclaimed educational show at the time, was missing. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Initially, the programming gap went unnoticed, but on May 1st of 1970, news broke that the Mississippi ETV Commission had made a decision to prohibit the show from airing. It later emerged that two separate votes had been conducted regarding the inclusion of Sesame Street. The first vote took place in January, and that was followed by a second vote on April 17th. The outcome of the April vote reportedly stood at 3-2 to two against the program. None of the commission members, all of whom were white, would speak on record about the ban. Yet they did offer up the following comments. Quote, Some of the members of the commission were very much opposed to showing the series because it uses a highly integrated cast of children. There was the feeling by one of the commissioners that some of the board were, quote, a little timid about the thing, and added that there was a fear that the broadcast of Sesame Street, quote, would offend someone and therefore endanger the possibility of ETV getting off the ground. He added, The people of Mississippi are ready for it, for the educational value, if nothing else. I consider the program one of the most wonderful series for three- to five-year-olds because it teaches numbers, letters, and words, and does it in a very unusual way the kids don't realize they are learning. Furthermore, there's a committee member who believed he wasn't being offensive, but still managed to exhibit an unmistakable and glaring prejudice in his statement. Quote, Some of the educators on the commission were a little timid. You know, they have a colored man and a colored woman 
who, by the way, speak excellent English. And they all have these little children around them, some black, some white. He further explained that it was fear of legislative disapproval of African Americans playing significant roles on the show that, quote, was the primary reason we decided to look at it a little longer. The national spotlight on this decision was clearly not good for the future of educational television in Mississippi, so the committee's official stance was that they had not banned Sesame Street. Instead, it had simply been, quote, postponed. One member told the press, quote, The ETV commission isn't against Sesame Street. There's no question in my mind that it will be on ETV in Mississippi. But right now, I don't think one program is worth risking what we're trying to build in this ETV system. By not showing this program now, the only people we are depriving are the ones around Jackson. We won't have the statewide system set up until at least the fall of next year. We haven't banned Sesame Street. We just decided this isn't the proper time to put it on the air. Needless to say, the decision to keep Sesame Street off the air was a controversial one. Joan Gans Cooney, who of course is the creator of the show, commented, quote, I think it's a tragedy for both the white and black children of Mississippi. Mississippi Governor John Bill Williams pleaded ignorance in the banning of Sesame Street because, quote, I don't know what it is. The decision to ban Sesame Street also produced a large volume of mail from people living both in and outside of Mississippi. The text of one letter to the ETV commission read, quote, There will always be people in Mississippi and across the nation who will find an integrated television cast offensive. But there are probably more conscientious parents who will put the education of their children ahead of their personal prejudices, and these people should not be denied a choice. An editorial in the May 5, 1970 edition of the Delta Democrat Times reads in part, quote, The neighborhood of the street is a mixed one, and all that, of course, goes against the Mississippi grain. It doesn't matter that integration in the schools is now a reality in Mississippi, and segregation is against the law of the land in virtually every field, including housing. Commercial television may portray this fact, but educational television, a state-controlled venture, may not. Thus, we are penalized again in our children more than adults by the official determination to pretend that reality doesn't exist. There is no state which more desperately needs every educational tool it can find than Mississippi. There is no educational show on the market today better prepared than Sesame Street to teach preschool children what many cannot or do not learn in their homes. The editorial concludes, As is the case of the ETV decision for not showing the award-winning documentary Hospital, deciding against running Sesame Street seems to indicate that Mississippi ETV will settle for mediocrity every time. If that proves to be the case, there are strong reasons to ask whether the tax money which is being appropriated for educational television would not be better rediverted to the public schools. There, at least, the realities of 1970 cannot be avoided, and the needs are immense. Stan R. Houston of Dallas, Texas, wrote the following to the Hattiesburg American, quote, It is indeed tragic that the children of your state will be deprived the privilege of viewing this extraordinary program 
because of the ignorance and bigotry of your so-called adult leaders. It is unfortunate and ironic that the children seem to suffer the most from the decisions and actions of adults. I sincerely hope that the intelligent parents of your state will voice their disapproval of this laughable decision and return this worthwhile program to their television screens. He concludes, When will Mississippi grow up and realize that we're living in the 20th century and that the Civil War has been over for 100 years? Of course, not everyone was in support of having the station broadcast Sesame Street, and their arguments conveniently sidestepped the issue of race. Instead, they directed their criticisms toward one of the backers of the program. That was the Ford Foundation, which they perceived to have an extremely liberal bias. Jim True of Long Beach, Mississippi wrote in part, quote, The very best reason for our ETV review board to reject Sesame Street is the fact that the Ford Foundation is one of its sponsors. Joanne Gibson of Hattiesburg, who admitted she had never seen Sesame Street, shared in those sentiments, quote, The Ford Foundation has financed many radical groups, including the National Council of Churches, the National Urban League, UNESCO, the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations, the Anti-Defamation League, the NAACP, the Southern Educational Conference, and the Sexperts at SECUS. Little side note, SECUS stands for the Sexuality Information Educational Council of the United States. Anyway, she continues, It has encouraged and financed leaders of the race war, which is filling American cities with murder, arson, and lawlessness. It has openly subsidized identified communist revolutionaries while waging war on anti-communists. In July 1968, with the Radical National Student Association neck deep in promoting revolutionary activities of the nation's campuses, Ford provided NASA with a grant for $315,000 to finance the increasing power of college students in educational reform. Dale M. Titler of Gulfport, Mississippi, wrote a lengthy letter that was published in the June 8, 1970 edition of the Sun-Herald. Here's just a snippet of what he had to say. Quote, Which brings us back to Sesame Street. Simply because something, ETV included, is labeled with the magic word education does not mean the contents are educational. Put this yardstick against so-called educational programs. Does it indoctrinate rather than educate? If it indoctrinates, unsuspecting students will allow their mental development to be arrested by instructors who cannot believe pupils are capable of rational, lucid thought and intelligent decisions. With all this controversy over Sesame Street, WDAM-TV Channel 7 in Hattiesburg, which just happened to be the commercial NBC affiliate there, they extended an offer to do what the officials of Mississippi ETV lacked the guts to do. They offered to broadcast Sesame Street if the state ETV committee didn't reverse its decision. Quote, We've heard much about the right of freedom of choice. If the program offends some viewers, they will exercise their freedom of choice by tuning to another channel. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more— We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. 
The Nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. The commissioners found themselves in a precarious situation, you know, facing immense pressure to reach a decision. On the one hand, if they persisted in keeping the show off the air, their detractors would perceive it as an unmistakably racially biased choice. But then if they chose to broadcast a show, they ran the risk of jeopardizing state funding for the channel, which could abruptly halt the realization of their vision for statewide educational television. The commission did not exhibit a sense of urgency in making a decision. It wouldn't be until their next regularly scheduled meeting on Friday, May 22nd of 1970, that they finally revisited and reevaluated the Sesame Street situation. And just what did they decide? Hmm. Well, the commission finally agreed to place Sesame Street into their programming schedule. They would commence airing the show as soon as they could acquire the necessary tapes. Executive Director William R. Smith, that's the same guy who penned the apology letter for the station's decision to broadcast hospital, he told the press that he was very pleased with the committee's decision. The Sunday, June 7, 1970 edition of the Clarion Ledger shows that the series was to begin broadcasting the following day. And the listing reads as follows, 4 o'clock, 29, that's channel 29, Sesame Street, the much-lauded children's show based on the idea that learning can be fun. The program will run on weekdays from 4 to 5 p.m. Well, I guess we'll never know if the show was truly banned or simply postponed, as the ETV committee claimed. We'll just leave that for history to decide. Anyway, earlier in the podcast, I'd asked you what two numbers and three letters sponsored the very first episode of Sesame Street, which was mostly not seen in the state of Mississippi. Did you know? Well, here's a little snippet from the very end of that show. Sesame Street has been brought to you today by the letters W, S, and E, and by the numbers 2 and 3. Useless, useful, I'll leave that for you to decide. So my original plan was to have this episode recorded and released about a week ago, but as they say, life got in the way. You see, the northeastern United States was hit with torrential storms last week, and that devastated a good chunk of the state of Vermont, plus the Hudson Valley of New York. And we're only about a half-hour drive from the Vermont border, but really things weren't that bad here, at least not like in Vermont. And that was until I went down our basement and saw there was water down there. And it wasn't a lot, it was just enough to cover the cement floor. So my wife and I, you know, we cleaned it all up and uh, figured we were good to go. But the rain continued and I went down the basement the next morning and I found even more water. There's more than there was there the day before. So I get out the wet vac and I cleaned it all up. Now I should point out we've never had water in the basement before. So I concluded that one of the downspouts outside, you know, on the gutters, it must have been blocked. 
and when everything was good outside, I'd go out and clean the gutters. That was until I went down the basement on the third day, because now there's even more water down there, and it hadn't rained in more than 24 hours. And as I'm vacuuming it all up, I noticed there was some foam being produced when I poured the water out. That's when I realized the water hadn't come from the rain. Just coincidentally, the sewer line in our house had clogged up and all the drain water from the house was backing up into the basement. Luckily, the septic guys, they came right over, they fixed it. Within a couple hours, it was fixed. But the whole ordeal managed to kill three days of me working on this podcast. As I said, sometimes life gets in the way. Now, if you've enjoyed this episode or the podcast in general, I would appreciate it if you could share it with someone, you know, whether that's through Reddit, Facebook, Twitter, or by whatever means you uh, think can help to grow my audience. Please be assured whatever you do to help spread the word is greatly appreciated. I really do appreciate it. Just to remind you, you can find the Useless Information Podcast wherever you get your podcasts, so be sure to subscribe. The Useless Information Podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network, so be sure to visit airwavemedia.com where you'll find a curated selection of some of the best podcasts, not only in history, but also in science, wellness, education, and the arts. As always, thanks very much for listening, and take care, everyone. Bye. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.